This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear a story by the Irish writer John McGairn. There was nothing left but his own lie. There had been nothing but that all along. The story is called The Wine Breath, and it appeared in the magazine in April of 1977. It was chosen for the podcast by Yun Lee, the author of the novel The Vagrants. Lee has published several stories in the magazine, as well as a personal history about the Chinese Cultural Revolution. She grew up in Beijing, moved to the U.S. in 1996, and currently teaches at the University of California, Davis. She joins us from a studio in Berkeley. Yun, John McGarren died in, in 2006, and during his life he was referred to as the best Irish short story writer since James Joyce, but he's still not really a household name in the U.S. How did you first come across his work? I ran into his books a couple of years ago in a bookstore in London and never heard of the name, so I picked up a couple of novels and really fell in love with his writing. So you had no idea who he was? You just were attracted by the books? Right. I think it just serendipity sometimes works in life. You know, you run into someone or a book. When we talked about doing the podcast, we talked about a couple of other writers, too, whom you were interested in reading, and, and they were William Trevor and V.S. Pritchett. I thought it was interesting. There were two Irishmen who lived in England and an Englishman who lived in Ireland. And I wondered if there was something sort of specific in that notion or in writers with that experience that appealed to you, whether just as a writer or whether as a Chinese writer living in the U.S.? I do often feel very attracted to Irish writers and, you know, the world they write about. And as, as I was reading with Pritchett, he said, you know, here we don't live a private life. We live a secret life. And that line explained very well to me, you know, why I was so drawn to Irish writers like McGowan and Trevor. I mean, I, I did grow up in that environment that there's not much privacy, but you could make up a whole world in your mind and, you know, you hold on to your secret life as much as you can. Yeah, there's a certain oppressiveness, whether it's your mother keeping an eye on you or whether it's God or whether it's the government. Right, right. Everybody keeps an eye on you. Well, you know, speaking of which, McGarren's second novel, The Dark, was banned in Ireland for being overly sexual. And it involves a boy who wants to become a priest and is agonizing over his his sexual desires. And, And the story that we're about to hear, The Wine Breath, also involves a priest. Was the Catholic Church a common subject for McGarren? Very much. And I think in an, in an interview, he said it beautifully. He said, well, when I grew up, hell and the purgatory were closer than Australia or America. <laughs> McGarren published seven stories in the magazine between 1963 and 1984. What was it about the wine breath that, that really stands out for you? For one thing, nothing happened in the story. It's a very quiet story. It was all in this priest's mind. But also, so much happened in the story. All the memories worked in a way that you realize he was living a life simultaneously at different moments of his life. And, you know, before he became a priest, after he became a priest. And now, you know, he was living with the ghost of his death. It's interesting. In the, in the present tense or the, the present world of the story, all that happens is a priest goes for a walk. But along the way, there are so many flashbacks that you have to watch out for that, that aren't really introduced. And you're, you're moving around a lot in time. And he didn't give you a cue. He just went back. Just as our, how our mind works, it just goes back to the moment of memory. We'll, we'll talk some more after the story. 
Now here's Yun Lee reading John McGarren's story, The Wine Breath. If I were to die, I'd miss most the mornings and the evenings, he thought as he walked the narrow dirt track by the lake in the late evening, and then wondered if his mind was fading. For how could anybody think anything so stupid? Being a man, he had no choice. He was doomed to die. And being dead, he'd miss nothing. Being nothing. It went against everything in his life as a priest. The solid world, though, was everywhere around him. There was the lake, the road, the evening, and he was going to call on Gillespie. Gillespie was sawing. Gillespie was always sawing. The roaring rise and fall of the two-stroke stayed like a rent in the evening. When he got to the black gate, there was Gillespie, his overrolled bulk framed in the short avenue of alders, and he was sawing not alders but beech, four or five tractor loads dumped in the front of the house. The priest put a hand on the black gate, bolted to the first of the alders, and was at once arrested by showery sunlight falling down the avenue. It lit up one boot holding the length of beach in place. It lit the arms moving the blade slowly up and down as it tore through the beach, white chips milling out on the chain. Suddenly, as he was about to rattle the gate loudly to see if this would penetrate the soaring, he felt himself bathed as in a dream in an incredible sweetness of light. It was the evening light on snow, the gate on which he had his hand vanished, the alders, Gillespie's formidable bulk, the roaring of the saw. He was in another day, the last day of Michael Bruin's funeral nearly thirty years before. All was silent and still there, slow feet crunched on the snow. Ahead, at the foot of the hill, the coffin rolled slowly forward on shoulders, its brown varnish and metal trappings dull in the glittering snow, riding just below the long waste of snow eight or ten feet deep over the whole countryside. The long dark line of mourners following the coffin stretched away towards Oakport Wood in the pathway cut through the snow. High on Killyland Hill, the graveyard evergreens rose out of the snow. The graveyard wall was covered. The narrow path cut up the side of the hill, stopping at the little gate deep in the snow. The coffin climbed with painful slowness, as if it might never reach the gate, often pausing for the bearers to be changed. And someone started to pray, the prayer traveling down the whole mile-long line of the mourners as they shuffled behind the coffin in the narrow tunnel cut in the snow. It was the day in February 1947 that they buried Michael Bruin. Never before or since had he experienced the mystery in such awesomeness. Now, as he stood at the gate, there was no awe or terror. Only the coffin moving slowly towards the dark trees on the hill, the long line of the mourners, and everywhere the blinding white light, among the half-buried thorn bushes, and beyond Killyland, on the covered waste of Gloria Bog, on the sides of Sleeve and Erin.
He did not know how long he had stood in that lost day, in that white light, probably for no more than a moment. He could not have stood the intensity for any longer. When he woke out of it, the gray light of the others had reasserted itself. His hand was still on the bar of the gate. Gillespie was still sawing, bent over the sawhorse, his boot on the length of beechwood, completely enclosed in the roaring rising fall of the saw. The priest felt as vulnerable as if he had suddenly woken out of sleep. Shaken and somewhat ashamed to have been caught asleep in the actual day and life, without any protection of walls, he was about to rattle the gate again, feeling a washed-out parody of a child or old man on what was, after all, nothing more than a poor errand, to tell the Gillespies that a bed had at long last been made available in the regional hospital for the operation on Mrs. Gillespie's piles. When his eyes were caught again by the quality of the light, it was one of those late October days: small white clouds drifting about the sun, and the watery light was shining down the outer rows to fall on the white chips of the beechwood strewn all about Gillespie, some inches deep. It was the same white light as the light on snow, as he watched. The light went out on the beech chips, and it was the gray day again around Gillespie's sawing. It had been as simple as that. The suggestion of snow had been enough to plunge him into the last day of Michael Bruin's funeral. Everything in that remembered day was so pure and perfect that he felt purged of all tiredness. Was for a moment eager to begin life again. Making sure that Gillespie hadn't noticed him at the gate, he turned back. The bed wouldn't be ready for another week. The news could wait a day or more. Before leaving, he stole a last look at the dull white ground about the sawhorse. The most difficult things always seem to lie closest to us, to lie around our feet. Ever since his mother's death, he found himself stumbling into these dead days. Once, crushed men in the garden had given him back a day he had spent with her at the sea, in such reality that he had been frightened, as if he had suddenly fallen through time. It was as if the world of the dead was as available to him as the world of the living. It was also humiliating for him to realize that she must have been the mainspring of his days. Now that the mainspring was broken. The hands were weakly falling here and falling there. Today there had been the sudden light on a bit of white beach. He would not have noticed it if he hadn't been alone. If Gillespie had not been so absorbed in his sawing, before there must have been some such simple trigger that he had been too ashamed or bewildered to notice. Stealthily and quickly, he went down the dirt track by the lake. Till he got to the main road, to the left was the church in the rookery of old trees, and behind it the house where he lived. Safe on the white main road, he let his mind go back to the beech chips. They rested there around Gillespie's large bulk, and paler still was the line of mourners following the coffin through the snow, 
a picture you could believe or disbelieve, but not be in. In idle exasperation, he began to count the trees in the hedge along the road as he walked. Ash, green oak, whitehorn, ash. The last leaves of vivid yellow on the wild cherry. Empty October fields in dull, wet light behind the hedges. This, then, was the actual day, the only day that mattered, the day from which our salvation had to be won or lost. It stood solidly and impenetrably there, denying the weak life of the person, with nothing of the eternal other than it would dully endure. While the day set alight in his mind by the light of the white beach, though it had been nothing more than a funeral he had attended during a dramatic snowfall when he was a boy, seemed bathed in the eternal, seemed everything we had been taught and told of the world of God. Dissatisfied and feeling as tired again as he'd been on his way to Gillespie's. He did not go through the church gate with its circle and cross, nor did he call to the sexton locking up under the bell rope. In order to be certain of being left alone, he went by the circular path at his side. A high laurel hedge hid the path from the graveyard and church. There he made coffee without turning on the light. Always, when about to give birth or die. Cattle sort out a clean place in some corner of the field. Michael Bruin had been a big, kindly, agreeable man. What was called a lovely man. His hair was a coarse gray. He wore loose-fitting tweeds with red cattleman's boots. When young, he had been a policeman in Dublin. It was said he had either won or inherited money, and had come home to where he had come from to buy the big Crossner farm. To marry and grow rich, he had a large family. Men were employed on the farm. The yard and its big outhouses with the red roofs ran with work, cans, machinery, railery, the sliding of hoofs, somebody whistling. Within the house, away from the yard, was the enormous cave of a kitchen. The long table down its center, the fireplace at its end. The plates and pots and presses along the walls, sides of bacon wrapped in gauze hanging from hooks in the ceiling, the whole room full of the excitement and bustle of women. Often, as a boy, the priest had gone to Michael Bruins on some errand for his father. Once the beast was housed or the load emptied, Michael would take him into the kitchen. The huge fire of wood blazed all the brighter because of the frost. Give this man something, Michael had led him, something solid that will warm the life back into him. A cup of tea will do fine, he had protested in the custom. Nonsense! Don't pay him the slightest attention. Empty bags can't stand. Eileen, the prettiest of Michael's daughters, laughed as she took down the pan. Her arms were white to the elbows, with a fine dusting of flour. He remembered this was a good place to come to when he has to start thinking about a wife. Michael's words gave license to general hilarity. It was hard to concentrate on Michael's questions about his father. So delicious was the smell of frying. 
The mug of steaming tea was put by his side. The butter melted on the fresh bread on the plate. There were sausages, liver, bacon, a slice of black pudding, and sweetest griskins. Now set to, Michael laughed. We don't want any empty bags leaving Bruins. Michael came with him to the gate when he left. Tell your father it's ages since we had a drink in the Royal, and that if he doesn't search me out in the Royal the next fair day, I'll have to go over and bait the lugs off him. As he shook his hand in the half light of the yard lamp, it was the last time he was to see him alive. Before the last flakes had stopped falling, when old people were searching back to the great snows when Count Plunkett was elected to find another such fall, Michael Buchan had died, and his life was already another such watermark of memory. The snow lay eight feet deep on the roads. And dead cattle and sheep were found in drifts of fifteen feet in the fields. All of the people who hadn't lost sheep or cattle were in extraordinary good humor, their own ills buried for a time as deep as their envy of any other's good fortune in the general difficulty of the snow. It took days to cut a way out to the main road, the snow having to be cut in blocks breast high out of a face of frozen snow. A wild cheer went up as the men at last cut through to the gang digging in from the main road. Another cheer greeted the first van to come in, Doherty's bread van, and it had hardly died when the hearse came with the coffin for Michael Bruin. That night they cut the path up the side of Killyland Hill, and found the family headstone beside the big yew just inside the gate, and opened the grave. They hadn't finished digging when the first funeral bell came clearly over the snow the next day to tell them that the coffin had started on its way. The priest hadn't thought of the day for years or of Michael Bruin, till he had stumbled into it without warning by way of the sudden light on the beech chips. It did not augur well. There were days, especially of late, when he seemed to be lost in dead days. To see time present as a flimsy accumulating tissue over all the time that was lost, sometimes he saw himself as an old man. Children were helping down to the shore, restraining the tension of their need to laugh, as they pointed out a rock in the path he seemed about to stumble over, and then they had to lift their eyes and smile apologetically to the passersby, while he stood staring out to sea. Having forgotten not about the rock in his path, it's this way we're going. He felt the imaginary tug on his sleeve, and he was drawn again into the torturous existence of the every day, away from the eternal of the sea or the lost light on frozen snow across Killyland Hill. Never before, though, had he noticed anything like the beach chips. There was the joy of holding what had eluded him for so long, in its amazing simplicity, but mastered knowledge was no longer knowledge unless it opened, became part of a greater knowledge. And what did the beach chips do but turn back to his own death? Like the sudden snowfall and Michael Bruin's burial, his life had been like any other except to himself. And then only in odd visions of it, as the lost life.
when it had been agreeable and equitable, he had no vision of it at all. The country childhood, his mother and father, the rival at the shocking knowledge of birth and death, his attraction to the priesthood as a way of vanquishing death and avoiding birth. Oh, hurry it! He thought. There's not much to a life. Many have it. There's not enough room. His father and mother were old when they married. He was the fruit of old things. He heard derisively. His mother had been a seamstress. He could still see the needle flashing in her strong hands. That single needle flash composed of thousands of hours. His mother had a vocation for him. Perhaps she had. Perhaps all the mothers of the country had. It had so passed into the speech of the country in all the forms of both beatification and derision. But it was out of fear of death he became a priest, which became in time the fear of life. Wasn't it natural to turn back to the mother in this fear? She was older than fear, having given him his life, and who would give a life if they knew its end? There was then his father's death, his acceptance of it, as he had accepted all poor fortune all his life long as his due, refusing to credit the good. And afterwards, his mother sold the land to Horace McLaughlin and came to live with him and was happy. She attended all the masses and devotions, took messages, and she sold, though she had no longer any need. Linen for the altar, soutanes and surplices, his shirt and all her own clothes. Sometimes her concern for him irritated him to exasperation, but he hardly ever let it show. He was busy with the many duties of a priest. The fancies on the past and future were secure. He must have been what is called happy, and there was a whole part of his life that, without his knowing. Had come to turn to her for its own expression. He discovered it when she began her death. He came home one summer evening to find all the lights on in the house. She was in the living room in the usual chair. The table was piled high with dresses. Round the chair was a pile of rags. She did not look up when he entered. Her still strong hands tearing apart a herringbone skirt she had made only the year before. What on earth are you doing, mother? He caught her by the hands when she didn't answer. It's time you were up for mass, she said. What are you doing with your dresses? What dresses? All the dresses you've just been tearing up. I don't know anything about dresses. And then he saw there was something wrong. She made no resistance when he led her up the stairs. For some days she seemed absent and confused, but though he watched her carefully, she was otherwise very little different from her old self, and she did not appear ill. Then he came home one evening to find her standing like a child in the middle of the room, surrounded by an enormous pile of rags. She had taken up from where she had been interrupted at a herringbone skirt, and tore up every dress or article of clothing she had ever made. After his initial shock, he sent for the doctor. "I'm afraid it's just the onset of senility," the doctor said. 
It's irreversible? The doctor nodded. It very seldom takes such a violent form, but that's what it is. She had to be looked after. With the sadness that part of his life was over, he took her to the home and saw her settled there. She recognized him when he visited her there the first year, but without excitement, as if he was already far away. And then the day came when he had to admit that she no longer knew who he was, had become like a dog kenneled out too long. He was with her when she died. She turned her face towards him. There came a light of recognition in the eyes, like a last glow of a match before it goes out. And then she died. There was nothing left but his own life. There had been nothing but that all along. But it had been obscured, comfortably obscured. He turned on the radio. A man had lost both legs in an explosion. There was violence on the night shift at Ford's. The pond had steadied towards the close, but was still down on the day. Letting his fingers linger on the knob, he turned it off. The disembodied voice on the air was not unlike the last day he had stumbled into through the light on the beach chips, except it had nothing of its radiance. The funeral during the years he carried it around with him, lost the sheltered burden of the everyday, had become light as the air in all the clarity of light. It was all timeless. And seemed at least a promise of the eternal. He went to draw the curtain. She had made the red curtain too with its pale lining, but hadn't torn it. How often must she have watched the moonlight on the steel headstones beyond the laurel as it lay evenly on them this night? She had been afraid of ghosts, old priests who had lived in this house. Who, through whiskey or some other ill, had neglected to say some mass for the dead, and because of the neglect, the soul for whom the mass should have been offered was forced to linger beyond its time in purgatory, and the priest guilty of the omission could himself not be released until the living priest had said the mass, and was forced to come at midnight to the house in all his bondage, until the mass was said. They must have been all good priests, mother, good steady old fellows like myself. They never come back. He used to assure her. He remembered his own idle words as he drew the curtain, lingering as much over the drawing of the curtain as he had lingered over the turning off of the radio. He would be glad of a ghost tonight, be glad of any visitation from beyond the walls of sense. He took up the battered and friendly missal, which had been with him all his adult life, to read the office of the day. On bad days, he kept it till late. The familiar words that changed with the changing year, that he had grown to love, and were as well his daily duty. It must be surely the greatest grace of life, the greatest freedom. To have to do what we love because it is also our duty. He wasn't able to read on this evening among the old familiar words for long. An annoyance came between him and the page, the mass he had to repeat every day, the mass in English. 
He wasn't sure whether he hated it or guitar-playing priests more. It was humiliating to think that these had never been such a scourge when his mother had been alive. Was his life the calm vessel it had seemed, dully setting out and returning from the fishing grounds? Or had he been always what he seemed now? Oh, yes, there you go again, he heard a familiar voice in the empty room, complaining about the mass in the vernacular, when you prefer the common names of flowers to their proper names, and the sharp, energetic, almost brutal laugh. It was Peter Joyce. He was not dead. Peter Joyce had risen to become a bishop at the other end of the country, an old friend he no longer saw. But they are more beautiful, dark rose, wild woodbine, buttercup, daisy. He heard his own protest. It was in the hotel that they used to go to every summer on the Atlantic, a small hotel where you could read after dinner without fear of a rising roar from the bar beginning to outrival the Atlantic by ten o'clock. And no doubt a little rose of Scotland, sharp and sweet and breaks the heart, he heard his friend croak maliciously. And it's not the point. The reason that the names of flowers must be in Latin is that when flower lovers meet, they know what they are talking about, no matter whether they are French or Greeks or Arabs. They have a universal language. I prefer the humble names, no matter what you say. Of course you do. And it's parochial sentimentalists like yourself who prefer the smooth south thistle to Sanchez Oleracius. That's the whole cause of your late lamented mass in Latin disappearing. I have no sympathy with you. You people tire me. The memory of that truculent argument dispelled his annoyance, as its simple logic had once taken his breath away. But he was curiously tired after the vividness of the recall. It was only by a sheer act of will, sometimes having to count the words, that he was able to finish his office. I know one thing, Peter Joyce. I know that I know nothing, he murmured when he finished. But when he looked at the room about him, he could hardly believe it was so empty and dead and dry. The empty chair where she should be sewing, the oaken table with the scattered books, the clock on the mantel. Wildly and aridly, he wanted to curse. But his desire to curse was as unfair as life. He had not wanted it. Then, quietly, he saw that he had a ghost all right, one that he had been walking around with for a long time, a ghost he had not wanted to recognize, his own death. He might as well get to know him well. It would never leave now and had no mortal shape. Absence does not cast a shadow. All that was there was the white light of the lamp on the open book, on the white marble, the brief sun of God on beechwood, and the sudden light of that glistening snow, and the timeless mourners moving towards the youth on Kililan Hill almost thirty years ago. It was as good a day as any, if there ever was a good day to go. Somewhere, outside this room that was an end, He knew that a young man, not unlike he had once been, stood on a granite step and listened to the doorbell ring, 
smiled as he heard a woman's footsteps come down the hallway, ran his fingers through his hair, and turned a bottle of white wine he held in his hands completely around as he prepared to enter a pleasant and uncomplicated evening, feeling himself immersed in time without end. That was Yun Li reading *The Wine Breath* by John McGarren. It was first published in *The New Yorker* in 1977, and you can find it in his collected stories, published in paperback by Vintage. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of *The New Yorker*. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow the writer's voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of "Have you saved up enough?", shouldn't they be asking, "What is it that you love to do, and how can we help you keep doing it?" The truth is, you are not slowing down, so your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future, so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com/actionplan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies, and broker/dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. Yeah, and reading reading the story or listening to it, that very first paragraph has so much shock value for me. There's this constant sort of twisting and turning. First, the narrator is thinking about how death will feel, and then he's calling himself stupid for thinking about it because he's going to be dead. He won't feel anything. And then he reveals that he's a priest, and we think, well, you know, he's someone whose entire life is based on the idea that he will exist in some form after death. How does he manage to fit so many twists and turns into eighty words? And, and what do you think is the effect of that on the on the reader? You know, I don't know how he did it, but somehow it's just that whole paragraph just summarized his whole secret life for the readers. It summarizes everything that he's going through in the rest of the story. These, That's right. These constant reversals of thought. That's right. What do you think is going on with him? That he's going through this roundabout cycle of memory and, and frustration. Is the story about a loss of faith? Is he remembering back the moments when he was convinced of his faith and everything was, you know, as he says, bathed in the eternal, and now he's sort of facing this gray light of doubt, or is it something else? You know, I think it has to do with you know he's an older man and he realized there are many possibilities in the world or in his life. And there's all these secret lives. You know, he could imagine himself being a young man. You know, waiting for a girl, or he could imagine himself in many different 
lives. But somehow he did say that, you know, all these are like a picture you could believe or disbelieve, but you cannot be in. So as if, you know, whatever his choice was would be the wrong choice for him in the end. I wonder why was Michael Barun's funeral so important? You know, he has that line where he says, never before since has he experienced the mystery and such awesomeness. What was it that he experienced that day? I think that, you know, I would go back to when Michael Bruin was alive. And you realize when he went to Michael Bruin's house, he was a young man. He was a teenager. And it was before his decision to become a priest. And there was that description of Michael Bruin's daughter, you know, the arm dusted by white flour to the elbow. And the kitchen was warm and it was, you know, people were happy and... The smell was good. It was almost the the warmest and, you know, most cheerful memory of him, you know, throughout that long life. And I think when he lost Michael Bruin, he lost that access to that warmth, to that happiness. But somehow I think that, that moving coffin along the hill, I think he might have misinterpreted something at that moment when Michael Bruin was sent to the to the graveyard. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if if that was the moment at which he understood that he was going to die because one could be alive and and cheerful in the warmth of a kitchen one day and dead the next, if if that was the moment that drove home his own death and perhaps drove him into this belief that by becoming, you know, allied with God, he would avoid it somehow. Right. I mean, it's interesting because he did mention there was the shock of death, but the shock of death seemed to come from Michael Bruin rather than his own father, because his own father's death was only mentioned, you know, one stroke. He just accepted it. Yeah, interesting. I mean, it's possible that Michael Bruin, you know, Michael Bruin's daughter represented a form of future for him. Right. That was then gone, whereas his, his father represented the past. Right. You know, one of McGarren's characters says, and I think in another story, says, only a fool tells everything. And I think that's sort of a, a motif for McGarren in his writing. He has this way of revealing information sort of very slowly and, and keeping secrets in reserve. Does it seem that way to you? Yes. I, I think all his stories, the characters don't tell you much. Just like you have to figure out someone you meet in life. You know, what he says probably doesn't come as what he doesn't say. You know, that... Very small touch of Michael Vuen's daughter, the arm. There's nothing more said about that. You know, in other writers' work, you might have seen some dramatic, you know, sensual descriptions. He really makes you work. You have to be a participant in the reading of the story. You have yes. to be constantly thinking. You can't yes. just soak it up. It's interesting when you said that because I was giving a reading one time and, you know, people ask all these questions, the same old questions. And someone said, well, you know, you're a writer. Is it lonely to be a writer? And another woman right away said, I disagree. It's very lonely to be a reader. (laughs) I just love that woman. You know, it's very true because when you're reading this, you cannot talk to him. You know, you just have to communicate to him in a very lonely way. <laughs> mm-hmm. You have to you have to hope that you're understanding what he meant. That's right. In McGarren's stories there's there's this you know very slow and steady accumulation of observation and and emotion that builds up and somehow that pacing feels to me as though it has something in common with the pacing in some of your stories. 
you know, I always separate writers to loud writers and quiet writers. Mm-hmm. I think Inuma Gahan is a very quiet writer. You know, the, all the dramas are from within, and the pacing is slow. It's almost, you know, as if you have to set up a puzzle for the readers. Mm-hmm. And you have to be really careful about what to give and what not to. I was thinking of that story of yours that we published recently, Alone, in which some details come out very slowly. <laughs> and you very much keep the reader guessing, and you think something on one page, and then you go, oh, no, it wasn't that, it was this, uh, as, as these things come to the fore. I do think I learned that from Irish writers, you know, mm-hmm. McGahan and Trevor, especially. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Ian. Thank you very much, Deborah. Yun Lee is the author of The Vagrants, a novel, and a book of stories called A Thousand Years of Good Prayers. Three of her stories can be found on our website, newyorker.com. You can subscribe to this and other New Yorker podcasts in the iTunes store. You can also download the weekly audio edition of the magazine through iTunes or audible.com. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by newyorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>